Alright, this is going to be transferring tape 5, Saturday, February 9th, year 2014. Ahead of time. Okay. Okay. Let's go with the baseball. Try again. Ahead of time. Okay. Okay. Let's go with the baseball. Alright. Baseball question. On February 10th, 1920, three things were outlawed in baseball. What were they? Well, I know one. Uh, one would be the spitball. Correct. Uh, and and they grandfathered that in to a guy ten years later was still throwing the spitball. Um, and that is absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Well, uh, Judge Landon was put was in office, so probably. Gambling on the sport, probably, I would say, was, was outlawed. Not on that day. Not on that day because of the Black Sox scandal, 1919. Um, well, the, the guy was killed, I think, in 1920 21, so not a summary. That's right. Not a summary pick, I don't think. Ben, ben no. Chapman was killed. Um, and he got the bean ball. He was the one hit by the bean ball. Right. Um, uh, how about the size of the spikes uh, that you could wear? Nope. 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 Uh, I never thought about that. I, did you, they do have regulations for that, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> how, about, how about the size of the glove, the catcher's glove? No. How about the uh, <laughs> umpire... Uh, Umpire had His to underwear. Wear, <laughs> umpire, umpire had to wear chest protectors. No. Fred, you got you got any ideas? What what other? Fort back. Fort back. No. Um. Mud on baseballs. Ooh, ooh, that would be under the shine ball. Yes, that's correct. Oh, okay. The shine ball was outlawed at the same time the spitball was outlawed. You want, what's, the, what's the difference, Patricia? You, you have a Between difference. a shine ball and a spitball? Right. The spitball is, is um, oh gosh, this pains me to say this. It's when the, the pitcher spits on the ball, right, which gives it, yes, yeah, but it, it allows the ball to leave his hand more quickly and it also changes the predictability or the aerodynamics of the ball itself so it doesn't behave as a normal pitch would behave it kind of wiggles and goes off and and the shine ball they took the ball and rubbed it on their uniform typically on their uniform and but the other side was dirty and they frequently used, um, you know, dirt, or even if they were standing in water, they would they would use mud. And 
so the ball was uneven and it would um, wind up in a stronger curveball. How am I doing? You are good. I, I didn't. I I didn't say that. You are good. I, but I didn't say that. Um. That's true. I missed all of that. Whatever, whatever worked on the on the trajectory of the ball. You know, whatever. Yes. Something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has just disappeared. I don't. I don't hear anything except that he's there. Uh, you can't cut the ball. He's saying, you no longer can cut the ball. That, uh, that's correct. And they called it an emery board. That is abs on emery board. An emery ball. So that would that would be consistent with cutting the ball or having you know spiked ring on your hand and and roughing it up. I guess would be the term, and it would cause an unnatural break in the ball. So you guys did good. Good job. Good you answer. guys did good. That was a hard one because they they were three, they were deliberately three separate items that were specified on that particular date, and all three of them were the kinds of pitches that the guys were throwing. So do you know who the last person? Seventeen pitchers, by the way, were grandfathered in this. Who was the last player? to be able to throw a doctored pitch. Yeah, nineteen thirty. I'm I'm trying to think of his name. If I if I had marble choice I would say I could tell you that that's the guy, but I am Oh man. I don't have a list to give you, I'm sorry. I, I can't know. even give you a multiple choice on it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, oh, Gaylord Perry is known to keep keep throwing it. Yeah. I don't know, Patricia. What what's the answer? Burley Grimes. That's it, Bernie Grimes. Name I never heard before. I have. Yeah, Bernie Grimes. You bet. Burley Grimes. You bet. So you guys did good. Yeah. All right, you go. Are you going to um? Hang around for his presidential question? Uh, no. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want a trivia question before you go to bed? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do a presidential question. All right. Go ahead, Patricia. He's going to hang around? Yep. For the presidential question? Yep. All right. So you have to tell me which one you want, your brain teaser, your presidential quote, or your presidential question. Let's go with the presidential question. Okay. Who was the first president to ride a train. Oh, I just get over. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, it's, it takes such simple things to make people so excited. <laughs> no. You really did used to know it. No. <laughs> You're going to go through the list like Walden does? <laughs> Yeah, he's like, Washington and Jefferson, John Quincy Adams. Well, Lincoln was the first dead president, right? Well, we had, we, we had Lincoln was, in, was in involved, you know, when they hook up the two, when they hook up the East and the West. And so they had the train run during the Civil War. 
and they ha they had the, the the gold spike in 1869. So I'm thinking they wrote it. Oh, before, I'm thinking they wrote it in the 1840s. Um. Well, that would be Hulk. How about James Polk? No. Andrew Jackson. Yes. All right. That is correct. That is correct. And Andrew Jackson was not a citizen of the United States. No kidding. Andrew Jackson, he he was born before the colonies converted to statehood. He was a colonialist. Yep, that's true. Yep, everybody up to um, who came after Jackson? Uh, who was the next one? Martin, B Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren. He was the first first uh, president to be born in the United States. Oh, interesting. Very good. Now, see, where else can you come up with this kind of stuff, you know? Only on Saturday nights, except now it's Sunday morning. Only on Sunday mornings. That's great. You don't know the answer, you just make it up. See, we were talking about that before. As long as you're adamant about your answers, people will believe you. That's right. So, do you want to be adamant with a trivia question? I'll try it. All right. All right. Let's see. Um. Um, geez, I've got all of these really great things. All right, Gerald Moore. We're into Gerald Moore tonight. Gerald Moore played a detective. Who was the detective? Moore? Uh-huh. Gerald Moore. Right, this is a detective show. Uh, why don't we just start listening to some detective shows here? Right. He was uh, in... He didn't play Johnny No. He didn't play Johnny Dollar. This, oh, we're doing the the Oscar Levant routine here. <laughs> yeah, uh, he wasn't the Lone Ranger, right? That's Yeah, it is. But I'm I'm being sassy here. You play Sherlock Holmes. So. That's <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. He did not play Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Should we give him credit for all of these correct answers? Yeah, I think he accumulating points. What's that? Yeah, accumulating You're, points. For all these correct answers, he was not Sherlock Holmes. That is correct. He was not Johnny Dollar. That is correct. Okay. We're we're accumulating correct answers from you. Are you old all day? Was it Columbo? That's right. Wasn't Columbo? It wasn't That's three. Okay, well, m moving right along. It was Gerald Moore who played Wait. this detective. Uh, I'm sorry, I think of Roger Morgan. <laughs> no, it was not Goldfinger or whatever. Who, who was that? Um, oh, my gosh. Who was, who was the character who fought Goldfinger? Oh, oh. Roger Roger Moore and Sean Connery and James Bond. Yeah. Thank you. You took, you took my you took my brain out of misery. 
Oh, Fred, you know, you, you are so muffled in the background there. It sounds like you're talking through a box of tissues on me. I'm sorry for missing so many words. How many James Bonds were they, and who are they? Oh, I think there were, I'm going to say seven. Am I close? No, you're not. Not even close, huh? Only four. Nine. Four. Nine? Four. Four. Four? You're kidding. More than I know. We had, we had Sean Connery yeah. and Roger Moore. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, um, oh, ba 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 Hold on. ba 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 Oh, he's got an unusual first name, too. Begins with a B. Yeah, he played on, uh, he played on that um, show that was Yes, and it was, oh, my gosh, and his name? Oh, and he was so good, too. What a great actor. I can't can't conjure his name, and it begins with a B. What is his name? Crosby. Is it Pierce Crosby? Yes. Yeah. And then I can't remember the new guy, what his name is. And I wouldn't have any idea. You know how good I am on movies. <laughs> yeah, I have no you idea just, what the new one is. But. I'm as good on movies as I am on the S words. Sean Connery is my favorite, though. Sean Connery is everybody's favorite, and that's not somebody. Oh, well, Roger Moore is uh, a full second. I like Roger Moore, too. Yeah, Roger Moore would be really cool. But he, did he, he was a cool guy. He did more than anybody else, didn't he? I don't know. I think he did. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I think he did more than, I just did between him and Connery. Okay, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) When it comes to movies, you could tell me anything. When it comes to sports, you can tell me almost anything. All right, here we go. Fictional superhero. Superhero. Originated in, oh, we already got that one. Wait a minute. Nope, nope, nope. We used that one already. Hold on. Um, Superhero. Comic book transferred to radio. Uh, you know that one for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. The longest running radio show ever. Debuted in 1928 and featured two white actors portraying two black characters. How was the show? Oh, right. I see. I told you you'd know that. I shouldn't even have that on the list. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> He's so honest. Okay, so now that I've taken care of your sports needs temporarily, what else would you like? My favorite husband? What? My favorite husband? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. All right, that'd be good. Okay. All right. Put the coffee on for us. Yeah, it's it's on automatic. It's going to start brewing in about 20 minutes here. Perfect. Excellent. 
Excellent. I take mine black. Thank you. Okay. You guys have a good week. Okay, Fred. Bye. You have a good week. Stay warm. Okay. Oh, by the way, who won the prize last week? Who won the prize? It was Dan. Oh, this one, it was Dan. Oh, okay. Dan in uh, Indiana. Oh, I think it's really neat. He's probably in bed by now, but I think it's really neat that kid calls. It is nice. Matt, Matt, Matt was a great caller. Yep. Good guy. I've been pushing it on my kids, so. There you go. Great fun. You bet. But, okay. Take care, Fred. All right, Fred. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. All right. So now I have to go back to your other questions. So what is it, Rebecca's Sunny Book Farm? And what was Rebecca supposed to have done? Was it the old radio show, the soap opera? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it was not. Rebecca's Sunny Book Farm was a movie. I don't yeah. think she was in. No, I didn't think it was. I think that was a Shirley Temple movie. Uh, I'm drawing a blank with Patricia, and I don't know once you tell me. Oh, I know you will. Our gal Sunday. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. You had the sun in there. I yep. thought you were, yep. you were circling the wagon train. Yeah, it just didn't click in. Our gal it Sunday. It didn't click, but I know you knew it. Yeah. All right, so you've got two left. Your brain teaser or your presidential quote? Brain teaser. Your brain teaser. There are two things no one can ever eat for dinner and probably shouldn't. Give that to me again. There are two things no one can ever eat for dinner. What are they? Yourself. Aren't the nice. <laughs> this is good. Now, when we talk about variety, we've got it. Uh, you can't eat breakfast or lunch. That's it exactly. Perfect. That's for you. You help me. All right. It's been good. All right. And that means you're left with one question. It is your presidential quote, and I like this one. It is easier to do a job right than to explain why you didn't. Harry Truman. No. It does sound like something Mm -hmm. he'd say, though, doesn't it? Ronald Reagan. No. Jimmy Carter. No. Gerald Ford. <laughs> I'm, you, you're working backwards no, one at a time? I'm doing it backwards oh. this time around, yeah. Yeah. No, well, you're going to have to go away. It was Martin Van Buren. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. It surprised me when I came in. You know, it's such a nifty piece of wisdom. I wish right. it had been from a president who was more visible and more, you know, sure. more exciting. Sure. But it wasn't. It was Martin Van Buren. How about that? With apologies to his family for calling him an unexciting person. <laughs> what if there are there any Van Buren descendants? They must be. Oh, I think so. 
every president has descendants who are attached to him. I would, you know, there are some family lines that die out. Well, like Abraham Lincoln. No more Lincolns, huh? No. I don't think there's any Lincolns. Did he, did he have any brothers? I think he, do I recall he had one brother? He probably did, uh-huh. So on that side of the family, there might be. There might be. You know, on, the, sure. on that on that tree branch. Sure, there might be, uh-huh. Only, of course, if he had a brother. Yeah. And we don't know he had a brother because Patricia just thinks he did. <laughs> so as long yeah. as as long as we are so overdue, let me see about Abraham Lincoln's brother. And Abraham Lincoln had a brother, Thomas Jr. Very little is known about Tommy Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's younger brother. He was named after his father, which is what junior usually means. Mm -hmm. Oh, he had five brothers. Oh, no, five brothers-in-law. Well, then he must have had a bunch of sisters, must right? Have been, yeah. have a brother-in-law without a sister, That's unless, true. of course, it was attached to his wife. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Oh, isn't this fun? Did you know Abraham Lincoln was president. Several of his wife's brothers served in the Confederate Army. Had five brothers-in-law, and they were all on Mary's side. <clears throat> At least one was present, brother-in-law Benjamin. There's nothing. Samuel Todd. George Todd, Alexander Todd, um, nothing about his own brother. I wonder how you can get through life with a brother who is president on such a huge scale and not have anybody know who you are. Tommy Lincoln's gravestone, discovered in 1933 by a WPA worker. Well, for goodness sakes, it was just a simple rock marker. Very little is known about Tommy Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's younger brother, Thomas Lincoln Jr. He's named after his father and born while the Lincolns were living in at the Knob Creek Farm in Hodgensville, Kentucky. The family lived there from 1811 to 1816. And many books list 1812 as the year of Tommy Lincoln's birth. When was um, Abraham born? Oh, nine. Oh, nine. So yeah. only three years. Oh, dear. Tommy lived only a short period of time. Well, did not live three days. Tommy died when he was three days old. No cause of death is known. Well, of course there wasn't a lot known about, oh, you know, Sometimes you just don't know where people put their brains through at night when they go to bed. Yeah. That's true. In 1933, while clearing a cemetery site, workers from the WPA came upon a small stone buried just below the surface. The stone had the initials TL carved into it, and the initials were an exact match with the TL that Thomas Lincoln had carved into pieces of cabinetry 
which he made for neighbors. It was felt that this was indeed Tommy's, little Tommy's grave marker. Wow. A Boy Scout Post 15 of Des Moines, Iowa, donated a new tombstone for Tommy in 1959. For years, the original grave marker for Tommy was on display at the Nancy Lincoln Inn next to the Abraham Lincoln Birthplace National Historic Park, but it's now under the care of its owner. What? Of whose owner? Tommy's grave Tommy. is located on private land, so it's probably the landowner. Uh -huh. they, they sort of didn't clean up the sentence too well. Little Tommy was the third child born to Thomas and Nancy Lincoln. The first child, Sarah, was born on February 10, 1807. The second child was Abraham, February 12, 1809. Doesn't say anything about Sarah. Huh. And uh, Lincoln's birthday is Monday. That's no, right. No, Tuesday. Tuesday the 12th. Tuesday. Yes, well, today is the 10th already. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I guess we have to track down Sarah Lincoln somewhere. I would say so. You bet. It's just, it's just such a heart hurt when you know oh, Thomas Lincoln made a coffin for his child. Hmm. Well, I was just thinking how sad the Lincoln's life in a lot of ways was. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And it's just so many of them. Had such wrenching, sad situations that attacked them. I mean, these, these just didn't even happen. These attacked people. Yeah. It was yeah. so sad. And they did great things for us in spite of them. Yeah. So, what do you want to do? You're going well, to ask me, Patricia, what would you like to do? Should we say goodnight to the family? We have to say good night to the family, or good morning, depending on which end of the world you're on. Let's do it. Are we ready? Family, we'll, we'll, we will be together next Saturday. We shall return. Until then, be safe, stay warm, and be well. Good night, everybody. Thank you for being with us. You bet. And Patricia and I will be there. Good night, Patricia. Good night, Baldwin. The party's over. It's time to call it a day. They've burst your pretty balloon and taken the moon away. It's time to wind up the masquerade. Just make your mind up. The piper must be paid. The party's over. The candles flicker and dim You danced and dreamed through the night 
Menu bar, Skype. designed it so that when he pulls his car into the driveway, the car was right next to the kitchen. So unloading the car, the groceries, was a snap. It would be right there into the uh, into the uh, in, you know into the kitchen. Although he had to go up that hellacious driveway. You see, if he had had a level driveway, the it would have been it would have come up to the level of the basement. And then it would, you know, that, that would have been, you know, a pain in the butt. Well, that's the same thing with me that I pull, if I pull the car into the garage, uh, if, if I wanted to unload the groceries, I had to go, I'd go halfway through the basement, all the way up the stairs here and go halfway back through the house to get them back out to the, uh, back out to the kitchen. So if I parked at the top of the driveway or I parked in front of the house at the street, then I could come into, you know, straight into the front door. But what I always wanted was to be able to drive the car up to the house. It would still be the front door and it would, you know, it, it opens on into the, uh, to the living room. But, uh, you know, that would have been the, uh, you know, what would be much more convenient. Well, about uh, the the summer before uh, my heart condition started up, the my next door neighbor, who had just they had just built their house there like about the year before, were finally getting around to getting the uh, driveway paved. So uh, uh, they they had had it uh, gravel. So I said, let me, you know, when you're doing it, let me get in 
on this and we'll have them do it all at once. We'll have them repave my driveway, which is right adjacent to their driveway. And where I've got a front walk, let me put in a wider blacktop. And I was only expecting to use it for, like, if I wanted to uh, you know, unload the groceries uh, or load or unload the, uh, the, you know, the car, because you know, I'd already been doing things, uh, moving stuff uh, back and forth uh, between here and Brooklyn, you know, moving Leah out to Brooklyn. And if you know, I could have the car right up to the front porch, that would be uh, that would be perfect. And so uh, we had uh, we had that done, and really from the you know the point of uh, when um, uh, you know I started getting weaker, uh, I've been parking the car right up near the house, uh, you know, near the front door of the house, and and uh, you know and and. Actually, the neighbors use my driveway more than uh, more than I do, and uh, and I do have a van parked out on that uh, on the the driveway. The van that really doesn't that I have really taken out to uh, to drive. It really is. I really need to get rid of it, <laughs> but I'm using it for storage right now. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, when we are, you know, when it is. Um, uh, when it is uh, 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 scheduled or, or predicted that we're going to have snow, what I do is I uh, I put the car right up at the front of uh, of this walk, facing out, facing aimed a little bit downhill. And so when we had snow a few days, uh, you know, last week, uh, I was able to you know go out of the uh, you know right onto the street very. Uh, very easily, uh, but you know, it, it, I can bring the car back up here to the house to uh, to unload records and stuff like that from the uh, uh, from the car. So, uh, of course, when I'm visiting Leah in Brooklyn, we have to fight for parking spaces in the in the vicinity in the uh, in the neighborhood. You bet. And so. Uh, Quite often, uh, when I'm there, you know, now that you know, now that I'm feeling a lot better, uh, I end up uh, when we go outside the house instead of driving places, uh, I do take the uh, the subway or I walk, uh, you know, to the stores or to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. If I have a good parking spot, I'm not going to give up that good parking spot <laughs> because I know that you know, okay, I could drive to the to the restaurant or whatever, but then when I come home, not, not going to be there. Yeah, that's right. I'll probably I might be parked back where the restaurant is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, the you know the wonders of having your own transportation. <laughs> uh, there's a let me see if I can find this. There is a paper program. Uh, for a show that somebody uh, came up with and posted uh, from 1936 hmm. that is very interesting. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, okay, 78 Records and Cylinders Fan Group. 
I think is where it is. And yes, that's him. Lloyd, no, no, it wasn't Lloyd Travis that had, uh, that found it. Let me get down. Yeah, Lenny Schwartz is the fellow that found this. Um, and let me get down to the paper itself. Of course, I have some questions about it. And you or the Gasmans might have might have the answer. Okay. Um, here's the inside. Where's the front of it? Oh, wait a minute. If I go to it, I'll be able to get it from there. Because I need to start off with the front. It is a, you know, it's a folded program, you know, for, for like a live show. Mm -hmm. For... United Cigar Stores presents the Good Evening Serenade with Isham Jones and his orchestra. Okay. Loretta Lee, uh, the Eaton Boys, Harry Von Zell, and Pat Weaver. Now, in the program itself yeah inside uh there are pictures of all of these isham jones master of melody and his united serenaders now united cigar stores is a chain of um, of cigar stores all over new york city and possibly over the rest of the country uh but uh you know they were your corner uh, you know, cigar store, candy store, mm -hmm. paper stand, and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, you know, the logo for United is like a uh, a, a crest of uh, you know, like, like a patriotic crest. Mm -hmm. And uh, that there is on the curtain behind uh, the uh, the band is a large, you know, like ten foot tall. Uh, United Cigars uh, crest, right. and then there is a picture of uh, the young Harry Von Zell, and another picture of the equally young Pat Weaver. Yeah. Harry Von Zell is listed as announcer. Pat Weaver is listed as master of ceremonies. Then there is a picture of Loretta Lee at the microphone, sweet singer Loretta Lee, and she is at a WOR microphone mm -hmm. and then there's the Eaton Boys which um, looks like a group of uh, one two three four that play guitar and one playing guitar and three are playing like a harmonica and that also is a different WOR microphone music and fun it says now, at the bottom of the listing of the program of what is on it is a date, January 17th, 1936. The program opens with Broadway Rhythm, Isham Jones and Orchestra. Good evening, all. Pat Weaver and Harry Von Zell. Spreading rhythm around Loretta Lee and Orchestra. Then a dialogue, Lost in the Big City, or... 
Ask at United, Harry Von Zell and Pat Weaver. Then take me back to Colorado, eating boys, strutting their stuff. Alone, Isham Jones and Orchestra. Then mob scene. How much will an audience stand? Or Von Zell learns a lesson from Weaver. Then comes I Feel Like a Feather in the Breeze, Isham Jones and Orchestra. Slipping Through My Fingers, Loretta Lee and Orchestra. I Want the South, the Eaton Boys going through, or the Eaton Boys change their minds about going to Colorado. Then Dialogue, Advice to the Lovelorn. Harry Von Zell and Frank Goldner. Now, they never mentioned Frank Goldner before. Then, medley from past vanities. Who do you love? Climbing the ladder of love, Alabama stomp, orchestra, an entire cast. Now, the last item on the program is Pat Weaver, a thought from the Ad Age machine. Now, even before I saw that last piece, I'm thinking, well, wait a second. I didn't know that Pat Weaver had done anything in entertainment before he became president of NBC Television. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about Sylvester Pat Weaver, right. of course, right. the brother of Doodles Weaver right. and right. the father of Sigourney Weaver and the inventor of the Today Show, the Tonight Show, and uh, loads of other things, the idea of the TV spectacular. And not that he was exclusively NBC in his early career. Again, I wouldn't know really what he had done on broadcasting. But Harry Von Zell was exclusively CBS. I don't think Von Zell ever did anything that was not CBS. And here we have... In two photographs, pictures of microphones that are clearly WOR. Now, of course, WOR was the first uh, uh, key station for the Columbia Phonograph Broadcasting System for United Independent Broadcasters in 1927. But by 1928, they were on WABC from Atlantic Broadcasting Corporation, uh, which they eventually, uh, which they eventually bought. Now, of course, is WCBS. So that, you know, if if Harry Von Zell is doing a broadcast, it would be a CBS broadcast. And, okay, now these performers might have performed on WOR, but would CBS print a program guide for the audience of their CBS show that showed a picture of two people at WOR microphones? <laughs> My feeling is this, that this is not a broadcast. Okay. What this is, is a convention program for the, uh, you know, a convention or meeting of United Cigar uh, store owners and that 
Pat Weaver is working for the ad agency that handles the advertising, including broadcast advertising, for United Cigars. Mm -hmm. he's, the, he's the ad agency rep. So, well, yeah. My, my thinking is, uh, what I know that Pat was doing in the mid-30s, he was part of the Fred Allen team. That's right. He was the uh, he, he was the uh, ad agency rep for Fred Allen and, and Harry Von Hill with the Fred Allen's announcer during the Town Hall Tonight show. So maybe there was a deal in place that Harry could work Fred's show because I would have been NBC, and he, and Macy was able to have an outcry somehow um, to work Fred's show exclusive, and that's how they were met. I'm just thinking outside of the box. Um, yeah, that that's that's a good point. Yeah. I, you know, because I remember that you know the Pat Weaver, you know that there were stories that he told about uh, the fact that he got along famously with Fred Allen. Right. Which no other advertising person <laughs> ever had. <laughs> so there might have been an escape clause for Harry Von Hill to get out, get to work Fred's show. Um, and that's how they were met. But, yeah, jeez. Oh, I hadn't realized that Von Zell was, at, was, was on uh, Fred Allen's show. Would that have been 35 and uh -huh. 36? Yep. Could I have air checks of that period with Von Zell? Um, but I'm just, I'm just thinking in my mind, I think, uh, I think Fred, was on CBS for a while and then moved to NBC and then in the early 40s moved In the back. early 40s. I, you know, that, you know, that I knew when you yeah. started saying about Fred Allen. Yeah. You know, I, I was about to say, well, this is 1936 yeah. and that the CBS Fred Allen show is what, 41 yeah. through 43? Yeah. yeah. It was, part of, it was t during the time when um, Texaco yeah. was the sponsor. And I think Texaco had a run on just on CBS programming for a while. Um, so now Ice and Jones, I just got a few Ice and Jones broadcasts. I haven't watched them. I just got. I think I got them. Uh, I don't. I gave the drive to Larry. Um, now but, let me. Yeah, yeah. That was that was what I was hoping. You know, maybe you know, Larry might be, be listening. listening. Uh, the the guy who had this uh, program, you know, who, who, you know, who found, you know, this program, he mm -hmm. says, I have the Isham Jones segment on an LP, and I asked him for discographic information, and uh, uh, he says, uh, Yep, I'm not sure it's there. Well, they were made at WRWEAF in New York City all in 1936. That's all it says. Well, another thing. I, that, that, I, if he's got it on an LP, I want to know. The, you want to see it. The, the, the record label, because maybe I have it. Yeah. Well, also, what I'm just thinking, too, here, how strong would the mutual hookup anyway in that 34, 35, 36 run? I mean... Uh, did Mutual have enough content to send down the line to those affiliates? So, in other words, did they have like a 
situation with WOW on it who who just took stuff from different networks. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing food for thought on, on the table. I don't know what WOR contract would have been in 36. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but you know, you're right, but you're right. who would who was CBS affiliate in New York in in the thirties? Oh, so CBS is WABC. Okay, okay. Yeah, the, the, by that time they had uh, by by that time they had bought out Atlantic Broadcasting. Okay. Uh, Uh, took the uh, the network over, uh, not Frank Stanton. Um, um, Paley. Paley, yeah, Bill Paley. Um, that was when they bought, or or that that's when they went on to WABC. Okay. And because it was cheap, and OR was ex uh, was expensive, and they so the time was cheap on WABC as well as station itself when they ended up wanting to uh, to buy it. Did they, uh, own, did they ever own WABC ever in New York? Like they bought KNX out here in 37, 38. Did they ever buy? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. So that, that, that's my point. Yeah. Did they you know, buy by this time at least, and it may have been a few years earlier, uh, they bought it. They bought WABC. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I think you might be right, Mike. Why else would they have a W? Why would they be using a WOR facility setup, basically? For I can go. Well, I don't. I, I think it was just that that the um, the photographs of these, uh, you know, of Loretta Lee and the yeah. uh, on the boys, um, uh, the, the the Eaton boys. I think you know the, the pictures were were just uh, WOR, you know, you know, pictures of of them at WOR. Yeah. I don't think it had anything to do with this particular broadcast. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. That that was you know that was the you know that that, that was just a picture. That was a PR photo. Yeah. Interesting. This is just the USA. Yeah. And I, I, are you? Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah, I was just I was just typing a response to him, and you know, what I meant was what label and catalog number the LP is. I might have it. Right. And uh, you, know, you know, over the past uh, you know few years, I've been picking up a lot of these um, uh, big band uh, reissue LPs. You know, mm -hmm. mostly the small label stuff that I never really picked up much before, mm -hmm. you know, when they were, when they were out, but, you know, all of the, uh, all of the collectors, you know, like at the, at the jazz bash, uh, you know, selling these things for like a, you know, a buck a piece. Mm -hmm. So I buy like 20 or 30 of them at a clip yeah. sometime. Yep. So, uh, the, you know, you know, so there's all sorts of, of things on, uh, you know, on those, and uh, you know, and, and you know, I might have it. I know, I you know, I know of at least one. 
Isham Jones album on Monmouth Evergreen. I think that was like the first time there was an Isham Jones LP. Uh-huh. You know, and uh, they were the same ones that also uh, did the uh, American issue of uh, the uh, uh, the new Paul Whiteman Orchestra, the Recreation Orchestra that Dick Sudhalter put together in England. And uh, then they also put out several Lee Wiley uh, albums. So there also was a an Isham Jones album, and I don't remember whether it was broadcast material or uh, or uh, records. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did look through the Isham Jones dis- you know, you know, listing, the discography in American Dance Band discography, and none of these songs show up in there. So it's uh, you know so if he's got these songs on the LP, they're not from seventy eights. So uh, uh, you know, and and I don't really have that many, if any, Isham Jones seventy eights from you know from the nineteen thirties. All the stuff I have of his are the Brunswick's, which he recorded in the nineteen twenties. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the nineteen thirties, yeah, you know, he was on Victor. And that which surprised me when I saw that, and then uh, around 1935 he moves over to uh, to Decca, and so he's there at Decca at the time of where this uh, this program would be from January 17th, 1936. Wow. So I just thought this was an interesting. Yeah, yeah. Especially if he says that he has the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the Isham Jones portion on, <laughs> uh, you know, on LP, you know, which, which means that uh, that the, you know, if the whole broadcast or the whole thing exists or the whole show exists, it was issued by a company that doesn't really. You know, their customers are not really interested in anything but uh, the uh, but music. They're not interested in announcing or uh, even if uh, you know, even if it's a little comedy routine between Harry Von Zell and the future president of uh, <laughs> of uh, NBC Television, they might not know who the you know who the devil the guy is. Yeah, true. But uh, I'm looking to see if he has, uh, you know, put anything else, posted anything else on uh, on here. There are a lot of other records that uh, I'm not sure whether they've posted the audio of these records. There's a guy here, Lloyd Travis, that's posted about ten records showing both the uh, both the labels. But I think that's all he has on there are the labels. He doesn't have the uh, the records. This looks like it's his latest, his latest buy. And uh, then Lenny Schwartz, who's the one that you know that posted the uh, the program, comes up with a forty-five. And uh, and Lloyd says that's a strange looking seventy-eight. And uh, I'm looking to see what the forty-five. Oh, it's Muggsy Spanier. My Wild Irish Rose, Muggsy Spaniard and his jazz band. So that's a, a early 
an early band, but I think I'd say you know a, a modern recording, and it's a pink label Decca, so it's a uh, um, promo copy. Uh, interesting Decca promotional label featuring. Featuring the December 11th, 1936 radio address, which of, of the, you know, it's the abdication. I would take the abdication at that date. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I haven't seen this, this version of it. I'm not sure if I've heard of this version specifically. It says, with compliments of Decca Records Incorporated, address of HM. King Edward VIII, December 11th, 1936. This record is not for sale. And along the top of the label, it says, Recorded and Manufactured by Decca Records Incorporated, New York, New York. And and it's on eBay. And someone said, probably taken straight off the Blattner phone tapes by being sent down telephone wires from Broadcasting House to Mattia Vale Studios. No, the Blattner phone would have nothing to do with it. But let me see, since it's on eBay, it's, if it's $20 with no bids. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> See if he's got the matrix number. I could look it up. Deck of 508 and 509. Record is in V++ condition. Plays quite nicely. A small scratch on one side does not affect play. Labels are good. White with compliments label. That's... Oddly compelling listening. It would be interesting that I ought to ask him, how does it start? It's not as if I need the uh, the recording. I've got as good a copies of the, record, of the recording. And there you know, had several other issues of it, because after all, it did come out on Brunswick Records. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, Brunswick at the point of... Uh, uh, ARC, American Record Re Recording Corporation, not uh, you know not you know affiliated with DECA at uh, at that point. And uh, so let's see what else is uh, of interest on here because I do have something of interest to uh, to play. And the, the latest thing on here is. A Vernon Dalhart, When the Moon Shines Down Upon the Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I think, he just has the photograph of the record, not the, uh, not the sound recording. So, well, uh, an interesting thing that just showed up on eBay, not on eBay, what am I saying, on, on YouTube, uh, I think it was just, I don't know, it says it was uploaded September 5th, 2011. Huh. I don't know whether it means that, that whether have means that that was uploaded that date or that's when it was, that's when it was taken. 
because it doesn't have too many views. Well, this was uh, linked from Facebook uh, from um, the Poet Laureate of Radio page. So uh, if it has their... Um, uh, you know, their approval of it, then I think we might, we might as well go ahead and play it. What it is, it's William Shatner talking about his time with Norman Corwin. And they say here, the footage was taken at Dragon Con 2011. And says, sorry for the shaky footage. The sound is, you know, is recorded also from the um, from the audience, but is plenty loud and distinct enough, so uh, you know that uh, that you can hear that you can hear. I haven't gone all the way through it, uh, but it's seven minutes and forty eight seconds. But I figure that we might as well be the first to put it on the air. You bet. So this again from Dragon Com, which. Um, uh, is a a uh, science fiction comic book uh, convention. Uh, this is 2011, and it may be September 5th, 2011. Uh, here's William Shatner talking about Norman Corwin. New play. We're on our way to Broadway. I'm playing the lead. In a, in, a, in a Norman Corwin play, and we're ready to go to Broadway, and the phone rings, and the voice at the other end says, you know that pilot you made this year? It's sold. It's called Star Trek, and you can't go to Broadway. you got to give it Star Trek. But I thought, oh, God, I wanted to go to Broadway. <laughs> I wanted to go to Broadway. I didn't want to do Star Trek. I wanted to go to Broadway. Between the two, I wanted to go to the theater. Yeah. How did you do Star Trek? So th that's the way that thing went. But, <laughs> but here's the story. So now years later, I mean, there was a a contingent of radio actors. Everybody made their living on radio prior to television. That's how actors kept themselves alive if they weren't doing theater. And the god, the guru, was Norman Corbin. So some years ago, maybe 20 years ago, he was, I presume, 80, and radio had long since lost its luster as theater. Great radio drama in those days, and I was at the tail end of it, both in Canada and in the States. I was at the tail end of the great radio uh, dramas. They called it the theater of the mind, and you would hear these radio you would hear it would be like people telling you a story and in your imagination you were imagining what the people where the people were and what they looked like so obviously you couldn't see any of that and in that in that in your imagination it's far more more dramatic and 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 beautiful and wonderful than anything that man can build because it's your imagination and it directly links to you so all these actors worshipped this guru, this great dramatist and director. At his height, he, uh, Norman Corwin, would 
would be directing would have over here 72 uh, pieces of orchestra, uh, or, uh, 72 piece orchestra, the, the, the CBS uh, symphony, uh, Stokowski, the great director at that time, great conductor at that time, over here. Over here would be 20 actors with microphones on them. Over here would be a coterie of sound effects guys. And he's in the glass in booth and he's conducting it. Music, segue into the actors play. Now this, and he's conducting it like, and if you ever saw him, he'd be like this, because he knew his play, because he had written this hour show, and he was, the, the world listened to him. On a note of triumph was the great praise of the ending of World War II. He did this, he wrote it, he conducted it. Stokowski worshiped him, and it was startling, and, and actors are, okay? PBS, about 20 years ago, says to Norman, we want to do a retrospective on radio, about radio, about what it was like in your heyday. He's a big guy like me, of course, I'd like to, I'll get all the fellows that like to talk. So he calls me. I was the latter day. I was the next generation. He, uh, Norman, had worked entirely with the Mercury Theater, which was Orson Welles and that whole company. Now, some of these names don't mean anything to you, but Orson Welles was like the great young director, and he too had been on radio, and he had, had this radio show, uh, um, uh, uh, War of the Worlds, that scared everybody in the United States in 1939. So now Orson Welles is working for Norman Corwin, and, and Orson Welles is in all his, well, I became the latter day Orson Welles, and whenever they would do a, uh, another broadcast of his show, he'd hire me to do the Orson Welles parts. I was really into radio, although I was much younger than everybody else. So now, Norman calls Bill, would you like to come down to uh, KTLA? We're going to shoot, you know, 20 minutes of uh, how the radio shows put on, and I'm getting everybody in. Uh, to, oh, I'd be glad to know. So now I get down there, and there's 20 guys. And they're all talking, radio guys all talk like this. We called it a covered voice. Hello, I'm, who was that announcer who was on that show? He'd, he'd cover his voice and he'd say, hello, my name is Jack Smith and I'm here today to audition. It was a covered voice. They would talk as though their voice was very, very beautiful. <laughs> that's the way they talk. They're a radio actor and that's the way they expected to sound. They didn't sound like people. They sounded like radio announcers. So they all did. So now they're all there. And we're reading script. And Norman, uh, uh, they got four cameras on us, and the cameras are going around, and there's 10 minutes to a real film. So the film, the cameras can only run 10 minutes. So they run the camera for 10 minutes, and we're all, and Norman is like, all right, now, uh, you'll do this and you'll do that. And then the director says, cut, we gotta reload the cameras, they cut, we stop talking, they cut, reload the camera, they start filming again. And now, uh, now remember, we've got a three o'clock broadcast somewhere. somewhere. Somebody said, had to be known. Three o'clock, it was like 10 in the morning. Three o'clock, we're broadcasting. We're not broadcasting. There's, there's no lights. There's an empty, he gets into an empty glass booth. There's, there's the cables, there's no cables. There's microphones that look like microphones, but there are no cables. It's a dead, it's a dead, it's like if we were doing a radio broadcast from here right now. There's nothing here but cameras. Come. 
About the second or third time, the woman director of the PBS special says, cut, we don't cut. All of a sudden, like those horses that used to drag the water wagons to a fire, they got the bit in their teeth and they would start running. These radio actors became imbued with the idea that we're going to do another radio show with Norman Corwin. <laughs> and now, an hour later, the cameras are all packed up and they're gone. And we're still rehearsing, getting up in front of a, a dead microphone, reading, and, and, and Norman's in this glass booth, throwing a cue to the non-existent Stokowski, <laughs> conducting the sound man who doesn't exist. And there's these actors who are living in his imagination that we're doing a radio show at 3 o'clock. And at 3 o'clock we do the radio show and we're everywhere shaking nerves because, I mean, you don't know who's going to hear you. Nobody's going to hear you. <laughs> and that's the way we had, that, that was the way we ended. The last thing I did with Norman Coleman was this ghostly radio show. And I went to his 100th birthday <laughs> and it was beautiful. William Shatner talking about his time with Norman Corwin. I'm trying to figure out now which of those uh, the TV specials he's talking about. Because there were several that uh, were not from an empty studio. That um, the, uh, the, the one which I used uh, little pieces of mm -hmm. uh, had, uh, you know, started with a table rehearsal. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, they, they were around, they were around microphones, but I thought I, I'm not thinking that it was actually, that it was actually filmed. I can't believe that they would be doing something like that with four film cameras instead of doing things with TV cameras for a, uh, for, you know, for a PBS documentary. That just seems so. Well, I'm trying to think the earliest thing that they shot with Norman directing in the 60s, early 70s was, I think they did a version of the plot to overthrow Christmas. Yes, that's the one where they where they did do a table rehearsal and then yeah. were doing, doing it from the studio. That was because I, I uh, as a matter of fact, that was where they uh, were. Um, in the documentary about Norman, he's you know he you know, th this was one of his parlor tricks. Mm -hmm. He started reciting the opening lines of the plot to overthrow Christmas, right. you know, from Maine to the Isthmus of Panama, right, right, <laughs> and uh, you know you know there are about three or four different recordings uh you know film interviews with him doing that so that that was that was uh, you know just like a fred foy's parlor trick was doing the the long ranger right. opening and that uh, every time that he did it you would think you know that the audience would think that this is the 
first time that he has done this in 30 years. But it's probably the first time he has done it in maybe, you know, 30 days. 30 days. <laughs> now, I think... I think you helped, You want me to look for this. We were trying... Didn't can Canada Broadcasting release a version of the Undecided Molecule in 73? And we couldn't come up with a copy of the video. I'm just... I'm just thinking if there's another possibility of another early thing that Shatner would have done. I don't remember him being part of the plot to overthrow Christmas thing in the late 60s. But You got a point there because that was a whole, that was a TV series. Right. A Canadian TV series and I think it was in 1973. Right. And that could very well be it that it may have been shot in California. Right. Or that was was done, in, or maybe it was done up in Canada, and he, you know, and, and he's he's up there, and he's Canadian, so um, that that might be the other possibility. Yeah, I think we need to ask Mike if he has the uh, any notes about what show that you know Shatner would be would have been been talking about. But that, you know, you know, it, it, you're watching Shatner on this uh, video. Mm -hmm. As I, as you know, as I said, this is on YouTube. Right. So uh, listeners can go and and find this now. You know, it's taken from the audience, and there are heads blocking the way. But throughout the whole thing, you can see his his upper body, and he's standing up, and he's. He's pretending to be Norman. Now the thing is, of course, you know, he mentions Stakovsky. And Stakovsky never would have been in a Norman Corwood radio studio for Pete's sake. But you know, it, you know, it would have been Bernard Herman. Mm -hmm. But he mentions, of course, uh, you know, on a note of triumph. Well, Stakovsky did conduct the New York Philharmonic for we hope the truth. Yeah. And and this was part of the uh, confusion that uh, uh, that Norman talked about that after the show, people didn't know where to call. You right. know why he wasn't getting any phone calls in the studio. He's in Hollywood. Stakovsky's in New York, mm -hmm. and FDR, of course, is in Washington. Right. And you know, and and since it was also on all four networks, you know, people would probably not you know, you know, people who were not really paying attention to this or really didn't know uh, much about the uh, about this program because after all it was something that was almost sprung upon an unknowing public with almost no advanced publicity and uh, you know here it shows up on all four networks what studio did he do it out of well he's a CBS person and he did it out of CBS right. CBS was the key station for the, uh, you know, for the uh, for the broadcast. But you know, NBC didn't say we're taking you now to CBS Hollywood Studio A. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, but but Stakowski was involved, of course, in in that program. Yeah. So what did they? What did he did hit part of the broadcast? Did he do that? Uh, a CBN affiliate in New York, or did they get go in and 
mic him down in NBC. No, you mean we hold these truths? Yeah. Or, or, uh, I mean, you know, yeah. You mean Norman? No. Kikowski. Oh, well, there's, uh, you know, uh, as to, uh, I'm not sure, but yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that it came out of 8-H. Okay, that makes sense to me. I'm not sure, you know, if, if that has been discussed, because they're also, you know, you know they, um, uh, I think the announcer says that it's the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. But other people have said, no, it was the NBC Symphony. Mm-hmm. The announcer just identified it incorrectly. Well, you, you don't really expect to find incorrect identifications <laughs> by the announcer in, in something like that. No. But uh, you know, I have. It's been a while since I've looked up in any uh, looked at any of the books of, about this. And uh, that would be, well, I was going to say that would be interesting to take a look at the NBC logs about this, mm-hmm. but no matter where the orchestra came from, they took the program from CBS. So what would be uh, you know, the, the source listed in the NBC logs for the studio of origination? And this would, of course, be in both the NBC red and blue logs. The studio of origination would be, uh, uh, you know, a remote line from CBS. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, now my recording, of course, is the CBS recording, right. which has the. Uh, uh, instead of the Lady Esther program starring Orson Welles, <laughs> you know, it has the disclaimer, the uh, the opening and closing. Right. Uh, NBCs would probably both of them would probably have uh, have the chimes, but I don't know of any versions of it that came out of NBC. As I say, my feeling is almost all of the versions that are. Um, in circulation have come off of the 78 RPM set that the uh, education department right. distributes because it, you know, it, it loses the opening and closing announcements mm-hmm. and has the same sound, deficient sound quality that you hear in all of the, um, um, you know, all, all of the circulating copies of the uh, of the program, but uh, that's because <laughs> I say I didn't listen to the Shatner thing beforehand, so uh, uh, so uh, you know, I, I figure uh, what what they say here on the poet laureate of the radio uh, Facebook page, Bill Shatner shares his passion for the one and only Norman Corwin just prior mm-hmm. to Norman's passing in October 2011. So. Good stuff. I know Shatner, uh, I up a ring for Shatner to do the forward for Michael's book. You know, the, uh, the scripts that, oh, uh, yeah. Bear Manor. 
just put out here last year, I think. Oh, uh, there's a uh, there's a comment here from Terry Pace. He says, "I was there and asked the question that prompted this response." Ah. Bill loved Norman and thanked me for bringing him up. So it's interesting. This was a response to a question. That, <laughs> well, you know, you know, I was going, I was going to tell you that you know, this is off the cuff. Mm -hmm. He's not reading. He's not reading from a script. He's not reading from any notes, and you know that's why he has the uh, you know he, you know he had to be prompted with uh, you know even with War of the Worlds, mm -hmm. and and as well as uh, you know he says 1939. So you know it, it's not as if this is something that uh, had even been, you know been planned. Right. Now again, it, I don't know if this is you know this may or may not. Be one of uh, Bill Shatner's, uh, you know, parlor pieces. <laughs> you know, that anytime someone asks about Norman Corwin, he brings this particular story up. Just sure. like I say, you know, Norman always would uh, would pull out the uh, the opening of uh, of the plot to Overthrow Christmas. So what what um, what, you know, what I did was I segued, or actually I think that this, the documentary segues. From Norman reading it to the uh, to it being read at the uh, at the table rehearsal, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking that that is Shatner. I have you know I'm, I'm you know I'm just trying you know I, I can't envision the uh, the picture I'm just I'm just envisioning the voice. Well, have you looked on on YouTube to see the version of Plot to Throw Christmas with Shatner? I'll do that in a second. Okay. What I was going to do is 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 see if the disc with my notes, you know, with with my inserts, right. if if that's on this on the hard drive. Uh, let's see here. To go to the hard drive, my book, um, and. What would this be included in in documents? Uh, Arsk Corwin. This is going to be a pretty big year in radio this fall, everybody. Think about it. The 75th anniversary of Wars of the World. 75th anniversary of the European crisis. We're sure to put CBS and the NBC News on the map. And the 75th anniversary of the plot to old overthrow Christmas all this fall from uh, September through December of 38 yeah that, that was quite a uh, well you know, and, you know as we as we go on now through the next five or six years we're gonna have these anniversaries yep. these 75th anniversaries coming up left and right left and right yeah that's true that's true uh, let's see. Well, okay, I don't have that there. Uh, so this is even. I, I sometimes put video in the documents. Uh, let me go back to um, videos. Uh, David Hall. David Hall. No. Uh, going back to. Um, 
program files, pictures. Uh, do, 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 do. Pictures, program files, documents, audio. Oh, let's look up audio. <laughs> uh, announcing of the 20s, Corwin. Uh, Corwin edits. We're going to see if there's anything here with video on it. Um, I know of Triumph. Kate Smith show this is war. We hold these truths. Um, well, as a matter of fact, we go to we hold these truths, <laughs> and that would have. This is this is the lousy version yeah, of. Yeah, I, I can tell that. I can only tell that from the opening. They got the guy yeah. in the echo chamber. We hold these truth. So let's let's just see though, if, if because um, uh, uh, Lionel Barrymore makes uh, you know does the um, open commentary. The, yeah, the, the listing of who is where. Many times before, and thus honored to have a this occasion by the Army Air Corps. Rudy Valley. In New York City, waiting to join us is Dr. Leopold Stokowski in the Symphony Orchestra. In Washington, the high. The Symphony Orchestra. Uh-huh. Okay, let's see how he is introduced, though, in this broadcast. Now, we covenant with each other before all the world that having taken up arms in the defense of liberty, we will not lay them down before liberty is once again secure in the world we live in. For that security we pray. For that Security, we act now and evermore. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard the President of the United States speaking from the White House in Washington, D.C. Our national anthem. You have been listening to We Hold These Truths, a special program commemorating the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights and presented over the combined radio networks of the United States. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke from the White House in Washington, D.C. The Hollywood portion of the program, written and directed by Norman Corwin, starred Edward Arnold, Walter Brennan, Bob Burns, Walter Houston, Marjorie Maine, Edward G. Robinson, Corporal James Stewart, Rudy Valley, and Orson Welles. The original music score was composed and conducted by Bernard Herrmann. The national anthem was performed by the NBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Dr. Leopold Stokowski, and came to you from New York. Okay, so there it says... Wow. See, 
Now, the thing is, I'm wondering whether that might be an NBC, that that might be an NBC recording. Um, so, what go to, you got your... I should. Uh, if not, I got it buried. If 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 I gotta go off, I can get it. Yeah, but I should have it. Uh, I should have it on here. Yeah, because you got yours broke up in segments too. Yeah. Um. On a note of triumph, Norman Corwin collection, lonesome train, God in uranium. Remember that was the big surprise when, yep. I, dis yep. when yep. I discovered that I had that. Uh, American in England. Okay, wait, Truth CBS. This would be it. This is Michael Beagle. On commercially sold CD... Oh, why are these not these tracks stop? Okay, stuck on track. Instead of the Lady Esther program with Orson Welles, you will hear a broadcast commemorating the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Bill of Rights. For this program, the President of the United States will speak from the White House in Washington, D.C. Leopold Stokowski will be heard from New York City. And here in Hollywood, Norman Corwin will present a drama written especially for this great American occasion. We hold these truths. Here's the closing. You have been listening to We Hold These Truths, a special program commemorating the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights and presented over the combined radio networks of the United States. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke from the White House in Washington, D.C. The Hollywood portion of the program, written and directed by Norman Corwin, starred Edward Arnold, Walter Brennan, Bob Burns, Walter Houston, Marjorie Maine, Edward G. Robinson, Corporal James Stewart, Rudy Valley, and Orson Welles. The original music score was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman. The national anthem was performed by the NBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Dr. Leopold Stokowski, and came to you from New York. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That sounds like a different closing announcer. That's what I was going to say. That yeah. is a different announcer reading the same piece. Right. And, of, of course, also saying, you know, you know, the NBC Symphony Orchestra, because he doesn't pause before he gives the CBS, mm -hmm. CBS logo. Yep. So uh, it could very well be that the other, you know, now I've got to go back, go back to the 78s and see what the... <laughs> My closing announcement is on the uh, is on the seventy eight. Right. And 
you know, I don't know where this, where I ripped the, um, uh, the other version of it from, but as to whether, uh, you know, whether that's what's on the, um, uh, the stuff from Radio Spirits, you know, whether, because I think that some of those don't have the closing announcement even. Mm-hmm. But um, the uh, well, you know, come to think of it, since we now have this the the quality of Skype, you want to go through that opening thing that I give where I I compare the sound quality. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, we 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 couldn't do it really as well as we can do it now. You bet. Let's do it. Yeah, because the first time we aired this, um, even though you had the disc out there, when I listened to it at home, I couldn't even hear any difference. Yeah, well, we were we were we were hunking down with the phone lines. Now we're not we're, we're going through computers now. Right. Yeah. So we're uh, we're we're even skyped into uh, Texas. Yeah. So uh, they should have full sound quality coming out of Texas. Okay. So here's my my uh, my little blurb. Uh, you know, uh, you know, because what had happened was when the um, uh, Radio Spirits version came out in the um, uh, Walter Cronkite box, I was furious that what they had was this crummy version, and so th- this was my answer to that. <laughs> This is Michael Beale. Are commercially sold CDs of old-time radio all they're cracked up to be? The recordings on this track are an example of how an important program has been distributed by an important company. You will hear a comparison of the opening sections of Norman Corwin's We Hold These Truths. First, from an analog tape a generation or two away from the original discs, interspersed with the same segments from the release that Radio Spirits included on the 60 greatest old-time radio shows of the 20th century selected by Walter Cronkite. I'm sure you'll notice how dreadful the sound quality is of this highly publicized commercial CD release. We hold these truths. We hold these truths. This is a program about the making of a promise and the keeping of a promise. This is a program about the making of a promise and the keeping of a promise. This is a program about the rights of people. This is a program coming to you over the combined radio networks of the United States. This is a program about the rights of people. This is a program coming to you over the combined radio networks of the United States, bringing you the voices of America, bringing you the voice of the President of the United States, bringing you the voices of America, bringing you the voice of the President of the United States. This is a program for listeners in all zones of continental time. For listeners on ships away from home. For listeners in uniform. 
Oh, listeners on the American islands in the two great oceans. This is a program for listeners in all zones of continental time. For listeners on ships away from home. For listeners in uniform. For listeners on the American islands in the two great oceans. This is a program about the guarantee made to the people of America 150 years ago. This is a program about the guarantee made to the people of America 150 years ago. A guarantee that has been kept through peace and war and peace and war. A guarantee that has been kept through peace and war and peace and war. A guarantee we call the Bill of Rights. I guarantee we call the Bill of Rights. I guarantee we call the Bill of Rights. 